Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. In the first 15 years of the AIDS crisis, 10% of the year-round population of Provincetown, Massachusetts died. Now there's a new memorial that's dedicated to those lives lost, those who helped to care for them, and the survivors. And that's what Provincetown has sincerely afforded me, is that sense of you're more than the disease, you're still a human being. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll revisit how AIDS shaped Provincetown, and we'll dig into the numbers behind HIV diagnoses today, hear about which communities are disproportionately affected, and explore why. There are some big issues in terms of really getting people the proper treatment they need. We'll also speak with Bill Littlefield. He's retiring as host of Only a Game after 25 years. And we'll hear about a group of marathon swimmers who are advocating for open borders. Every time you say our purpose is to find a legendary lake creature and promote a more open border, (laughs) it's like, well, maybe those two are the same thing. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start by talking about a health crisis that's been with us for decades and has morphed into a problem that disproportionately affects one part of the population. In New England, about 36,000 people are diagnosed with HIV. Almost all of these cases are found in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. But a staggering number of those affected are people of color. In 2016, black males in Connecticut were about nine times as likely as their white peers to be diagnosed with HIV. And Hispanic males were more than four times as likely as white males to have a positive HIV diagnosis. Those are just some of the statistics uncovered by Mackenzie Rigg and Jake Cara of the Connecticut Mirror as part of a series in conjunction with Connecticut Public Radio and the New England News Collaborative. Mackenzie Rigg joins us now. Welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. So why don't you broadly give us this story in statistics? How, how big are the disparities in HIV diagnosis for, for people of color? The figure the nine times more is likely really shows the magnitude of this problem here in Connecticut, but also in New England and across the country. I think another really telling statistic, and this is a nationwide statistic, but it really answers the so what question. And the CDC has projected that there is a lifetime risk of getting HIV is around 1 in 99 for all Americans. But what is really staggering and really scary is is that risk is 1 in 2 for black men who have sex with men, 1 in 11 for white, gay, and bisexual men, 1 in 20 for black men, and 1 in 48 for black women. And so our story really narrowed in and focused on the population of black men who have sex with men. And so for my story, one of the biggest things that I set out to do was find someone who could talk about this. And that's where Arthur Harris comes in. He is 26 years old. He's gay. And he contracted HIV when he was 17 years old. Tell us more about, about his life story and, and why you, you chose him to be the person to tell this very important story. There's not one reason why this disparity exists. If that was the case, it would be solved and it wouldn't be an issue right now. As I say in the story, you know, this disparity persists because of some of the most stubborn 
social injustices and social problems that exist in our country from racism to incarceration to access to health care to poverty. And so with Arthur, I met him and very quickly I realized that he had a very complicated, tragic story that led to his contraction of the virus and that he would be able to personify in a way and bring to life in a way this problem because his story is not linear in any means. It's very complicated. And in the healthcare world, we often hear the the terminology social determinants of health. And so he had a lot of these things going on that led to him being susceptible. He grew up in poverty in the projects in the North End. He lost his mother, his best friend, uh, very unexpectedly when he was 12 years old. He was horrifically bullied for many years for being gay, even though he hadn't come out as gay yet. And there were other things that happened in his life. And, you know, we lead into this story by explaining some of this and also his quest for love. And that quest for love landed him in the arms of a man nearly twice his age and in some risky situations that led to him contracting the HIV So I think that he brought to life this issue. We were able to, in our story, not just give a bunch of really scary statistics, but we were able to show through one person's experience what it's like to live with this and what led to him contracting this virus that will never go away. And when you talk about these social determinants, this really gets at the heart of why we have this particular disparity in healthcare, why there's there's such a high prevalence among black men and Latino men in the population of states like Connecticut and Massachusetts. The person I talked to that gave me the most insight into this was LaToya Tyson. She's been working in prevention for 20 years. She explains that when this epidemic first came out, that this population was, they were watching their friends, their loved ones, their family members die on a weekly basis. There were funerals, she said, on a weekly basis. They watched this HIV rip apart people's bodies, the devastation that it caused But these days, she said, this population, black men who have sex with men, don't understand that or don't have the perspective of that or the context of that. That's not what they're experiencing. The medications are so good these days that they're not only tolerable, but they're letting people live long, healthy, plentiful lives, as she said. In addition, she also mentioned that it's not a lack of education, that, you know, in in addition to AIDS-CT, Other nonprofits, other agencies are really focusing their attention on this group because of the risk that they are in. So it's not a lack of information. If anything, she mentioned that there might be a fatigue of information. But she also said that this group, they know how to protect themselves. They know they don't want to get HIV. But she thinks a big part of this comes from the fact that they just don't when they're getting the education and the information about why they should protect themselves, it's not in the context of because if you don't and you get this virus and you don't take the medication like you should, it will devastate your body. It really shows that even though we are in a time where HIV is something that really can be treated and and people can live with it their entire lives, there are some big issues in terms of really getting people the proper treatment they need. That's Mackenzie Rigg, healthcare reporter at the Connecticut Mirror. Now, when she's talking about treatment there, she means people who already have HIV. But public health workers are pushing a medication called PrEP that's meant to prevent new HIV infections. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Vanessa De La Torre reports, getting the word out about PrEP has its challenges. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. 
It's been around for six years, and it's for people who don't have HIV, so they can stay HIV negative. The CDC says taking the pill once a day can lower the risk of getting HIV through sex by more than 90%. But ask around, and the word PrEP tends to draw some blanks. Have you heard about PrEP? No. No, I think this is no. That's Amanda. She says she gets tested every so often for HIV because she used to engage in really high-risk behavior. That's why we're just using her first name. I didn't know there was a pill that can prevent it. That's pretty cool. Only about 700 adults in Connecticut were on PrEP in 2016. But the State Department of Public Health says more than 15,000 residents could be at risk for HIV. So outreach workers are going old school and putting boots and high heels on the ground to get PrEP on people's radars. Lady Tatiana has been on the scene for 25 years, performing at Pride festivals and hosting Latin Night at a gay Hartford nightclub. Now she also works for the community renewal team as a prep navigator. CRT is an agency in Hartford that gets government money to be on the front lines of HIV prevention. Lady Tatiana, a.k.a. Tatiana Melendez, is a transgender woman who's been on prep for five years. She says she takes prep because she can't trust others to keep her safe. Life short, you know. Some of Lady Tatiana's fans are transgender women and gay and bisexual men of color, groups that are contracting HIV at higher rates. So on stage and off, she's become an ambassador for PrEP. After the Maya, I talk about PrEP, about CRT, prevention, all that stuff. Part of her job is helping people get around barriers to health care, the same kind of barriers that contribute to the racial disparities in HIV rates. If someone's interested in PrEP, she figures out doctor visits and how to pay for the drug through rebates or insurance. Getting to that point of interest can be hard. Not everyone wants to admit out loud that they might be at risk for HIV. Giovanni Rolon works with Tatiana Melendez. And we weren't getting a lot of people in PrEP, but since Tatiana is here, we've gotten 17 people in the last month. Sheila Roan is a 57-year-old black woman. Roan says this is the first time she's heard about PrEP. But she sees the stigma surrounding HIV and how people can be ostracized. They shouldn't judge them, they be helping them. You think there's a lot of judgmental people out there? Yes, it is, girl, please. Too many judgmental people. Outreach workers say there's also a stigma with PrEP. Because the drug is so effective at preventing HIV, they say PrEP users are unfairly tagged as promiscuous or unsafe. Out in Hartford, Michael Antonucci has a quick chat with CRT. I don't want to ask, this isn't like a free pass to go use, do high-at-risk activity, right? Yeah. It's just a, you know, it's a preventative, prophylactic measure to, to... Exactly, and we want to make sure that people understand that PrEP only protects you from HIV. We also have syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, hep C that PrEP doesn't protect you from. It's Friday morning at a Hartford park, and Rolone makes clear that PrEP is not a golden ticket out of using condoms or clean needles. The CRT crew has set up a table with freebies and they're offering rapid HIV screenings in the back seat of Rolone's gray Nissan Rogue. In just a few hours, they give about 19 HIV tests, doubling their goal. Those who are HIV negative and interested in PrEP know to give Tatiana Melendez a call. We're done for the day. It's not even 12.30 yet. I know. We have time for lunch. <laughs> The Connecticut Department of Public Health says it's also trying to educate more doctors about PrEP and get the conversation on HIV prevention more out in the open. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Vanessa De La Torre.
Vanessa's story and the one by Mackenzie Rigg and Jake Kara are part of a collaboration between the New England News Collaborative and the Connecticut Mirror. You can read more at nextnewengland.org. When the AIDS epidemic devastated the country in the 1980s, Provincetown, Massachusetts was hit especially hard. In the first 15 years of that crisis, 10% of the town's year-round population died. The events of those years still reverberate. Sophie Cases brings us the story of how the epidemic shaped Provincetown. In it, survivors remember what they lost, what they built, and the impact of AIDS in this small, close-knit beach community. But first, a warning for you, this piece includes sensitive material and language. Oh, it was a seismic earthquake. It seemed like people were grabbing at straws to define what this was. There was a certain level of panic. And that was part of the fear. We didn't know what it was or how it was transmitted. The rumble started slowly. It was 1982 when things began to change in Provincetown. The small beach community at the tip of Cape Cod was home to many LGBTQ people. It was also a popular vacation spot, a kind of artsy gay mecca. Couples held hands and ate ice cream, buskers and drag queens lined Commercial Street, and rainbow flags tussled in the wind. But beneath this lightness, something had shifted. The first case of AIDS had just been identified, and young gay men were getting sick. I remember when it became apparent that this was a real killer. I had this moment, this revelation that most of my friends are going to die. And it was like sad and profound all at the same time where you just thought this is going to change everything. And it did. It totally did. By 1990, there were almost 200 reported cases of HIV and AIDS in Provincetown, and there were still no effective medications. The numbers grew and grew. Where family members and people that we know hardly knew anybody at all that were dying, we knew two and three people a week that were dying for years. We go to a, an event, and there'd be four of us in a car, and we have a conversation, who's going to be next? You know, and you, you would think, well, I'm feeling this, so I'll probably be next, is what you'd think. Or you'd look over at the next guy, and he's skinnier than I am, so maybe he's going to be next. AIDS was a visible disease. Emaciated men sat on town benches. Many suffered from Kaposi sarcoma, which were cancerous skin lesions that would grow together into large purple blotches. One person described his friend's skin as almost wood-like. He said you could knock and hear a dense sound. All this and more was happening in Provincetown, a major tourist destination. Sick men stood in stark contrast to carefree vacationers shopping for taffy and t-shirts. We used to have one electrical hospital bed. And I remember pushing this bed down Commercial Street with all these people coming at me, you know what I mean? Well, first of all, they're looking at me like, why is this going on? But they're all in shorts, and you know, they're, all, they're on vacation, you know? And I thought, this is the weirdest thing that's happening, you know? So you have this town of, like, merriment and whale-watching, while you also have this huge, heavy-duty thing going on in it at the same time. There was already plenty of homophobia in the 80s and 90s, and the AIDS epidemic, new, mysterious, and feared, 
ramped up even more aggressive discrimination and anti-gay violence. At the time in New York City, it was just hysteria. The morality in our society said to me that I deserve to die. You do what you do and you deserve to get what you get. Just throw these drugs down those faggots' mouth and kill them and then they'll be quiet. That's exactly the attitude in the late 80s. It certainly was. Here, because this is a gay town, this is much more forgiving and much more accepting. And that stigma, it wasn't overt here. Because Provincetown was a refuge, many people with HIV and AIDS moved there to live out their last days. So officially in March of 1988, I tested positive for HIV. And I knew that what I wanted to do was to die in a community that would care for me and not treat me like a leper, not throw me in the gutter. And this town afforded death with dignity because you knew that the people who were around you would care for you. That's what I saw. Provincetown is small, only 3,500 year-round residents. And back then, the community was really tight-knit. People here say it would have been almost impossible not to know someone affected by the disease. At one point, this town had the second highest number of people with AIDS per capita in the country. If you think you're not affected by this, you are so wrong. Because it's the guy down the street, it's the guy who works in your supermarket, it's somebody that you know that you're not aware of. And that made it different. It was hard to look away. And that wasn't Provincetown style. Community members, nurses, business owners, clergy, and activists all came together to confront the crisis at hand. They mobilized, and the town became a role model for caring for people with HIV and AIDS. At the center of this response was the Provincetown AIDS Support Group. The support group was very lucky. We had a very good leader, who was Alice Foley. She was the town nurse. She was a wild brazen, pugnacious advocate. She was like a big mother to all of us. She wore red converse. And she used to say to us all the time, we are creating the wheel. Because her way was to push it in people's face, make them talk about it. How do you prevent from getting it? The medications that are used, compassion, unconditional loving. What happens when you drop somebody? Alice's great words were, Pick him up and get him back in bed and carry on. The community came together to bring dignity to the dying. Volunteers bathed friends, cleaned houses, and drove a weekly van to Boston for doctor's appointments. The amount of effort that everybody put in and love and compassion was truly astounding. The women at this town were terrific. The lesbians that helped out, they really, really rallied and came to the forefront um, when a lot of the men were really just struggling to stay alive or struggling to figure out what to do next. All this effort was to help people live out their final days with care and comfort. And they threw huge fundraisers to pay for medical bills and housing. You would think that a place that experienced death like that would be, you know, very sober and very, you know, reticent about celebration. Oh, that's crap. Who do you think raised the goddamn money? It was drag queens. All the events in Provincetown, it was always hosted by a drag queen. It was always drag queens performing. They were the energy. They were the life force. They were that way of throwing the pain of the world right back in the world's face and making us eat it up and laugh. Hundreds of people died, 10% of Provincetown's year-round population. But then, in 1996, 
a new class of drugs called protease inhibitors became available. They weren't magic pills, but the new drugs prolonged life for many. It was like a sudden screech and halt in the whole process. And it was almost like, you know, people standing on the precipice of a cliff and then some still tottered over and the others didn't. There were a lot of people who, if they had lived one month longer, they would have been living today. But there was a price to be paid, and there still is a price to be paid with every medication a person with AIDS takes. In the decade after protease inhibitors came out, that contrast between breezy tourists and thin AIDS patients out on a town bench started to diminish. Things were calming down. But for those who made it through, it was complicated. And the survivor's guilt, I think it was probably, for me, one of the toughest parts that I dealt with inwardly that I didn't talk about a lot. Because how can you talk about the fact that you survived? How can you not be happy for that? Well, when you think you're going to be the only one left, it's hard. Yeah. You know, you had to push a lot of the feelings aside just so you could function. And I think that for many years after that, I was traumatized. A lot of dreams, nightmares. But I think as time has gone on, it's diminished a lot. I mean, it doesn't haunt me anymore, but it used to. Many survivors say they feel profound gratitude for the gift of time they were given. I think one of the things that people with illnesses often do is retreat into the illness, and it becomes the entirety of their existence. And yes, there is that kind of weight associated with many illnesses. But I also believe, though, that if you succumb to that, then you truly die before you die. And I was never going to do that. Never. And that's what Provincetown has sincerely afforded me is that sense of you're more than the disease. You're still a human being, and clearly that's what's occurred. <laughs> that was Sophie Kaza's report. The new Provincetown AIDS Memorial was officially unveiled on June 16th of this year. An inscription dedicates the memorial to the lives lost to AIDS and the caregivers who responded to the crisis. You can find out more information about the memorial on nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll speak with local sports legend Bill Littlefield ahead of his retirement. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The only NPR sports show, Only a Game, produced at WBUR in Boston, was first broadcast back in 1993 with Bill Littlefield as the host. Now, 25 years later, Bill Littlefield releases his final broadcast of the show this weekend. Bill joined us last year to talk about New England's sports culture. Today, he'll join us to reflect on his long career. Welcome to Next, Bill, and congratulations on your retirement. Thank you very much. So take us back to 25 years ago. Why did you start Only a Game? I wish I could say it was my idea. I had been doing commentaries for WBUR and for NPR's Morning Edition for uh, about eight years. And there was a fellow here who worked with Car Talk, as a matter of fact. And he had the idea that maybe it'd be a good idea to tell the general manager to put a sports show on and, and let me be the host of it. And he it was no longer involved after a fairly short time. But the idea lived. 
And what was the idea when it started? What were you trying to do that NPR wasn't previously doing? Well, I think the idea was to tell stories that were set in sports as well as articulately as NPR was doing all sorts of other stories. And we did some research and we found that, uh, in fact, um, a lot of people who listened to NPR were very interested in sports. They weren't necessarily passionate fans of a professional team, although some of them certainly were. But they went to the gym. They played a lot of different sports. They were on uh, amateur teams. They exercised regularly. (laughs) And so we thought, well, you know, that probably means there's an audience for a a, a program that talks about good stories or presents good stories set in sports. And and maybe especially if we concentrate on the areas and the particular sports that most of the rest of the media neglects. And so that's, that's how we started out. Do you think that uh, a show like this could have only come out of a place in such a great sports town? It feels like Boston's uh, (laughs) one of the places that could make this happen. A lot of towns might not have been able to. Yeah, I think that's especially true with regard to whatever stories we've done that have involved professional sports because Boston is a place where all the teams come through. You've, You've got the NBA. You've got the NFL. You've got Major League Baseball. You've got Major League Soccer. You've got the National Hockey League. Until very recently, we had the Boston Breakers, so women's pro soccer. The only thing we lack here in Boston, and I hope that somebody will be listening and will take care of this soon, is a WNBA team, and uh, Mm -hmm. I wish we had one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Boston's a great sports town, always has been, uh, plenty going on, so we've had no problem finding stories here. I'm sure you, you've heard these things from people over your 25 years of doing the show, that on one hand, when NPR talks about sports, they don't talk about it with sometimes the, the same level of attention to sports detail that, say, ESPN does. So for real sports fans, NPR often doesn't give them everything they need. Then on the other hand, I know you get these all the time, I sure do, is whenever we do talk about sports, there's a segment of the NPR population that says, oh, Sports is so mundane. It's not something that's important. (laughs) Everything else is more important. So how do you thread that needle between these two sides, the sports fan who thinks we don't know enough about sports to talk about it intelligently and the non-sports fan who just doesn't want to hear anything about it? Well, in response to the first part of your question, I don't think we ever saw ourselves as competing with ESPN or with Sports Talk Radio or with any of the other places that people go for their instant updates and comparisons of players and, you know, uh, digital readouts of batting averages and ERAs. We saw the opening for doing stories about people who happened to be in sports, whether they were players or coaches or athletes or ex-athletes or, I don't know, one of the things that we got onto very early was ex-athletes from the National Football League who were suffering from all sorts of damage to their brains, uh, which was a direct result of playing football. And uh, we got involved in telling some of those stories well before the National Football League admitted that there was an issue. How do you think sports has evolved? Has it changed a lot over the course of the the last 25 years? Oh, it's changed enormously, and not only 25 years, but uh, the greatest single change in sports in my lifetime is the opportunities that women and girls have in sports. When I was a kid, there were no athletic scholarships for women. If women wanted to compete in a team sport, maybe they could be cheerleaders. Uh, mostly the best female athletes were tennis players or swimmers or uh, 
you know, involved in gymnastics or some sort of individual sport. Now, my goodness, you've got pro uh, basketball, you've got pro soccer, you've got college scholarships by the thousands uh, for women who play hockey and all sorts of other sports. Uh, that That's the single greatest change. We have a long way to go before women and girls are treated equally with men and boys, but uh, we've made a heck of a lot of progress, and, and that's the greatest change I've seen. What are some of your favorite segments, the things that you're, you're proudest of that you presented over the course of the, the history of the show? I talk a lot about a series I did way back in 2000, 2001 with the Roxbury Community College basketball team uh, here in Boston, partly because I learned so much from it. I spent a fair chunk of the season going to practices, going to games, went to a tournament, national tournament with these guys, went to class with one of them as well and learned a lot about how these guys, most of whom were the first person in their family to go to college, were taking advantage of the program in Roxbury and uh, not only playing great basketball, but building a very solid foundation for the rest of their lives. That's one of my favorites. Another of my favorites was an interview I did with Reuben Carter, Hurricane Carter, Mm -hmm. uh, who was imprisoned for 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. And I, when we were all finished, I said, you know, I've read the book. Uh, Jim Hirsch wrote a tremendous biography of Reuben Carter, which is how I had the opportunity to interview him. And I said, Reuben, I've, I've read the book, and I understand throughout the book you maintain that you're not bitter, and I can't understand how that would be the case, uh, 20 years of your life stolen by the state for something you didn't do. And uh, he said, if I'm bitter, who do I hurt? Do I hurt the judge? Do I hurt the police officers? Do I hurt the witnesses who lied about me? Uh, I don't hurt any of them. I just hurt myself by Mm -hmm. carrying bitterness in my heart. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to diminish my life. And instead, he devoted um, nearly all of his life post-incarceration to helping get the release of other people who had been unjustly jailed and incarcerated and and, uh, deprived of their rights. And he was very successful. He got a lot of people out and um, was a tremendous citizen and and, uh, somebody that everybody in this country should be very proud of. So, Bill, what's next for you? What are you going to do after you leave uh, Only a Game? Well, I've got a couple organizations that I'm going to work with. Over the uh, course of... um, you know, all this time interviewing people for various stories. I kept meeting people who were doing all kinds of interesting things, and I'd find myself saying, oh, that's an interesting idea, working with kids in a bookstore or whatever. And uh, maybe I could do that someday, and now I'm going to get a chance to do it. And I'm going to, I hope, write another book myself and, um, you know, do some other things with some organizations that I've come to admire over the years. It sounds like you've got a lot of really cool stuff lined up. We're, we're going to miss you on the radio, but uh, it sounds like this is a good next chapter for you. I hope so. I hope so. I, I've been trying very hard to uh, make sure that I'm going to retire to something rather than just from something. Well, we look forward to hearing what you're doing next. Bill Littlefield is host of Only a Game, the only national NPR sports show. It's produced by WBUR Boston. After hosting the show for 25 years, his final broadcast is on July 28th. Bill, thanks so much. Congratulations. Great to talk with you. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Speaking of the kinds of sports stories Bill Littlefield just loves, VPR's John Dillon recently covered one event, a marathon swim across a very large lake. 
But it's not just any lake. It has a great name, Lake Memphremagog, and it's in Vermont's Northeast Kingdom. That's partially in the United States, and it's also partially in Canada. And for the last seven summers, a group of marathon swimmers have swum across the lake to draw attention to international borders. Here's John Dillon. This is a story about a lake and its people and an athletic event that attempts to erase a barrier between two countries. But first, the lake. It's big. It's not Lake Champlain big, but it's big. It's long. It's 25 miles long. And out here, the waves are big. And the swimmers, these swimmers are swimming 25 miles against this wind, against these waves. Hours earlier, they gathered before dawn. Seven swimmers, ranging in age from 14 to 69, wrapped themselves in parkas, towels, even a spare tablecloth to ward off the chilly wind. Swimmer number one, two. Race organizer Phil White checks their radios and goes over safety procedures. What we're going to do is get the boats set up, have them all out there, then the swimmers can gather. Um, White first saw the lake in 1980 when he was appointed Orleans County State's Attorney. He says it was love at first sight. I've talked to a, a number of people that have come into town just looking around and bam, they just fell in love with this lake. White is a former prosecutor, a skilled trial lawyer, not what you'd call a mystic. Yet he says there is something special about Memphremagog, including its legendary creature called Memphrey, that's been spotted over the centuries. And there's a lot of uh, spirituality connected with this lake um, that you discover over time. And it's not just Memphrey. There's hieroglyphs up on Owl's Head, and a couple of different historians have traced the Knights Templar from Paris to Scotland to place now known as Montreal and down here to Memphremagog. White has named this marathon swim in search of Memphrey, but it also has a political message. After the 9-11 terrorist attacks, a professional swim race from Magog in Quebec to Newport ended in part because of border security issues. White worked with Canadian and U.S. officials to get the border open to swimmers and launched the Memphremagog swim in 2011 as an amateur race. The border remains a focus. This year's event is dedicated to asylum seekers. You're quietly doing what you can do. And every time you say our purpose is to find a legendary lake creature and promote a more open border, <laughs> it's like, well, maybe those two are the same thing, you know? So the search for Memphrey has many, many dimensions to it. The swimmers offer similar yet unique reasons for putting themselves to this extreme test. 69-year-old Dan Shubb is from Baltimore, Maryland. His journey to Memphremagog started with a cancer diagnosis. He knew he had to get in shape, so he started training, first with running, then swimming, cycling, and triathlons. He now runs less and swims more. He says the distance swims become almost meditative. It becomes kind of, uh, I don't know, yoga-like, zen-like. You get into a sort of a mental state that's kind of peaceful and not even thinking about swimming sometimes. 14-year-old Vera Rivard is the youngest of the seven. She's trained hard, and she says the hardest part is... Probably the mental game in this, just seeing if I can do it. Darcy Rivard, Vera's mom, said she takes cues from her daughter about whether she has the strength to finish. 
my husband and I try to leave it up to her, but I mean, if it was unsafe, then we would. But mostly it's a mental game that she plays, and if she wants to do it, then she does it, and, and we leave it up to her. Charlotte Brin is a native of New Zealand who swam the length of the lake in 2011. Brin is an experienced marathon swimmer who swam 28 miles around Manhattan Island. She's on a support crew this year, and she says Memphis Magog is huge, mysterious, and extremely challenging. Really, my favourite swims and my hardest have been on Lake Memphis Magog. It's a feisty lake. You know, it's, it's sometimes people think a lake can be benign, that wind can whip. It can be changeable out there, and uh, it's a long swim, it's a, mentally and physically. On swim day, the water is around 72 degrees, but the air is chilly and the north wind kicks up a fierce chop. We pass Vera Rivard about five miles out in the open lake. Her parents and sister are alongside in boats, and the young swimmer seems undaunted. Vera Rivard! been waiting a long time for this. She's one happy girl. How's Mama doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm safe for her. But other swimmers are having trouble. The first one pulls out at about six miles, just over the border. White says the conditions are exceptionally tough. We're gonna pick you up, Sandra. Some days the magic works, and some days it doesn't. Over the next 12 hours, four others pull out. Dan Shubb, the 69-year-old from Baltimore, is the last one to pull. He makes it 17 miles. After 15 hours and 51 minutes in the water, Sharisa Gutierrez of Omaha, Nebraska, swims ashore in Magog. Vera Rivard touches land shortly after her, completing the swim in 16 hours and 24 minutes, the youngest person ever to traverse the 25 miles. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon in Newport, Vermont. Coming up, a unique program at a state prison in New Hampshire that's all about people making something. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. There are many things associated with prison life, but woodworking isn't usually one of them. It is part of life for inmates at the New Hampshire State Men's Prison in Concord, where the Furniture Masters of New Hampshire have been leading a program for nearly two decades. Hannah McCarthy introduces us to this program in NHPR's Word of Mouth podcast. In downtown Concord, next to Gibson's Bookstore, there's a small visitor center for the Chamber of Commerce. You can pick up brochures, postcards, maybe a mug or a stuffed moose. There's local art from the League of New Hampshire Craftsmen. And then there's the furniture, an inlaid federal-style mahogany sideboard, a contemporary bookcase made of figured cherry and ambrosia maple. If you didn't know it was made by an inmate, it would pass the jury of the furniture masters, no matter who you are or where you came from. We would like this person to be part of our organization based on the quality of that workmanship. Terry Moore is a member of the Furniture Masters of New Hampshire, a group of highly skilled craftsmen who highlight furniture making in the state. And the pieces made at the state prison are no exception. 
He says a lot of people hear prison hobbycraft and think basic or crude. Because they equate, well, it's an inmate. It's, it's something that they do, like in a high school, you have a, a wood shop and it's just, um, it's an aside. It's something that, oh, they also do a little bit of woodworking. No, these guys are going at it like you'd go after your master's degree. It's all in. For 19 years now, Terry and fellow furniture master Tom McLaughlin have been visiting the Concord Men's Prison on a monthly basis, teaching inmates in the woodshop how to craft furniture. It took a year, but that following year, each piece um, became part of our exhibition. Some of these inmates become so devoted to the craft that their work becomes indistinguishable from that of a furniture master. And for most, these skills aren't going to be confined to the prison forever. One of the things that people don't realize about prison is that these guys get out eventually. And that's one of the, the underlying premises of why we do what we do. They get out. And would you rather have someone that has spent uh, days in, in learning and mastering a craft or someone pumping iron and <laughs> wasting their life away? Spending so much time with these inmates, Terry becomes a key figure in their lives as craftsmen, which means he's at the top of the call list for many of these men when they do finish out their sentence or make parole. Inevitably, I get a call, and uh, like when Donnie got out, this was February, and I was actually working uh, on on my house at the time, and, and I get the call, this is Donnie, I'm out. And, and then I said, well, come on up for lunch. When an inmate is released, Terry explains, they have to make many things happen on their own. There's a halfway house, there's a parole plan, but they may still find themselves in an unfamiliar environment after having been sequestered away from society for years, sometimes decades. He tells the story of one inmate, a devoted furniture maker in the prison workshop, who was placed in Manchester after his release. The city was essentially unknown to him. He's been in prison for 20 years, and, you know, the, the people at the halfway house give you a map and say, go find a job. So he came back two hours later, he got a job in a cabinet shop, and now he's the foreman of uh, this cabinet shop, um, making all of the complex custom work for that cabinet shop. As Terry sees it, these men are learning not just a trade, but developing a practice. What we are doing is teaching them not only a craft, but it's an art form. And any time you take on yourself the discipline of learning a craft, it's excruciatingly painful because inevitably the first few years you're going to be making mistakes, a lot of mistakes. By the time their furniture is good enough to appear in public exhibitions, an inmate is producing work that a full-time furniture maker would charge a high price for. The federal-style sideboard, for example, Terry says that would go for around $10,000. But inmates do sell their work while still incarcerated. Even without the overhead and clout of a professional furniture maker, this sideboard sold at auction for five grand. In this gallery here, the Furniture Masters nonprofit wing gets a percentage. They get 10% of everything that sells here. Then um, the prisoner gets a percentage, and then they are allowed to donate the balance to the 
charity of their choice. So they don't, they're not making a killing. They're making basically toothpaste and soap money. In the New Hampshire Department of Corrections, inmates can earn up to $4 per shift working in either essential operations, that's meal prep, laundry, maintenance, or correctional industries, that's furniture refinishing, woodworking, license plate making. Inmates can have up to $1,000 in their prison account and can use that money to buy things at the canteen or for medical co-payments. Restitution is automatically deducted, and inmates may also be paying taxes or fines. You need some cash flow within the prison system. This is the, the only way, the only resource that if you're in prison, in state prison, making something in hobbycraft and selling it is the only way that you can legally make money while in prison. What Terry means by this is that selling a piece that you make in hobbycraft is the only way to generate income from an outside source, from something other than an established job in the prison. Even with daily wages from an in-prison job, the cost of, say, soap or a t-shirt or ordered damages may mean that an inmate depends on money from family or friends. So even the small percentage made from selling a piece of furniture can make a big difference to the inmates in the program. Yeah, and this will, hobby's given me a lot, so I don't have to. I don't have to rely on my wife or my family to be able to give me money. To I've been able to do it through hobby to take care of myself in here, which is a big thing for a lot of people. This is Robin Knight, an inmate at the state prison in Concord. He's been working in the woodshop since 2003 and says he was initially a little wary of furniture making. But now, he says, he looks at the program as having been a saving grace. You forget about where you're at, and it's more of being in a, an environment of almost like you're not here, uh, not in the prison system. You're, you're doing something that is meaningful to you and to others that you do stuff for. Robin talks about furniture making as an act of giving back. That's not just the proceeds donated to charity, but the experience of working with other inmates in the woodshop, like one man who also works in the kitchen, who asked Robin about making a hutch for him. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, he'd never done it before. He was in baskets, which is over here. And I said, you know, he came into wood and I said, I'll help you out. So we started building a little hutch. So it's going to be a floor drawer hutch. The woodshop at the prison is a large, bright, open space. Machines are whirring constantly, sawdust is floating through the air. Walking through, it feels like being in any skilled craftsman's workshop. Well, when the furniture masses came in, it gave you something to strive for. You know, it gave you something to push you forward, try to make you do something better on a, on a better level. This is Alan Eason. He's been working in the hobby shop for about 16 years and he is looked to as a real master among those in the furniture program. So it's changed how I do everything. I mean, it changes how you do, how you are in regular life. I mean, it pushes you forward. It makes you think about things more because you can't just slap stuff together. I mean, in the shop, it changed. Everybody did everything with power tools, and you see it change over to a lot more hand tools now. So it really changes how you do everything. Alan stresses that hobbycraft and selling the pieces they make is not a business and these inmates don't think of it that way. The practice of woodworking itself and of teaching others is the factor that keeps these men coming back every chance they get. 
Like Robin, he describes it as transportive. It gives him something else, something of value to focus on. I mean, you come up here, it's not dealing with all the bull crap that you have to deal with in the units and all that. Because, you know, prison's not fun no matter where you are. So coming up here gets you away from a lot of that. Absolutely, yeah. This is the best thing we have. Eric Windhurst is the inmate who made the cherry bookcase on display in downtown Concord. He's set to be released in 18 months, and he thinks of that focus shift as the ultimate point of the Furniture Masters program. You know, that, that is the goal. You know, that's why they come in here, to, to show us a whole other level and range and way to perceive woodworking. And, and then that builds you up as a person, makes you, you know, more introspective, um, makes you more patient. Um, especially patient, it really, really that's what it is, it's focus and patience. Most of the inmates in this program put their small percentage of the furniture sales right back into making more furniture. They buy books, magazines, or hand tools that will help them craft the next project and improve their skill set. And the self-esteem and self-respect transfers to, you know, life on, you know, outside of the prison in ways that nothing else in the prison can do for an individual who may not have a lot, you know, of, of life experience, you know, to go back out on the, in the real world with. Educational and vocational programs have been found to have a big impact on recidivism rates among prisoners. One 2013 study found that this kind of programming can reduce repeat offending by over 40 percent. That was Hannah McCarthy for NHPR's Word of Mouth podcast. For a link to the full episode, visit nextnewengland.org. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.